0: A word of prayer, Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace to us this week, and uh, we are so thankful that uh, you are with us day by day, and that we can trust in your sovereign will, that uh, you are working all things for your glory and for our good, and help us, Father, uh, to trust you about these matters. To Submit ourselves to your will and to your direction. Uh, Increase our faith and our trust in you. We pray that we might uh, learn to trust your word more as we study it and as we learn what you would have us to learn in 1 Corinthians so that we can better discern your ways, your thinking, how we should respond and act in this world we live in. Help us, Father, to be uh, better servants and more useful to you, more pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, the uh, first major section, uh, 110 through 421. And uh, this is this whole thing about divisions. Uh, and remember, I said these divisions are disputes, are different opinions within the church at Corinth. And, they, their, and their situation has some parallels to situations we find in modern churches. Because many, sometimes in churches, some of the disputes and difficulties uh, revolve around leadership in the church, that is. I mean, I bet you I was in a hundred churches when I taught in the seminary. You know, I would go out to this church and that church and you walk in the door, you don't know what you're walking into. You just don't. And it's actually pretty hard to preach because you really don't know the people that well, unless you've been there before, you don't really know exactly. But sometimes you find out that there's, you know, just different, uh, a couple of groups, you know, one group. One group, we've been in this. They've been in this church for a hundred years, and we're not leaving it. And there's a group over here that's mad at this group over here. I've seen a few cases like that, and and some of it has to do with similar things to what we see here. So we want to learn from that as we can. And uh, these divisions uh, surround are about. Uh, Leaders, the leaders uh, in the church at Corinth, are people who have come to the church at Corinth. Really, like Paul, who founded the church, and Apollos, who's been there, and maybe Peter. We don't know, and so forth. So people are rallying, rallying around certain human leaders, and uh, so we're looking uh, tonight at uh, this first section here. Um, an exhortation for unity. So Paul, we've talked a little bit about the, the problem and uh, kind of the background on the previous page. We talked about some of the issues involved in this quarreling and divisiveness and so forth. Uh, but Paul begins here in 1.10. He starts with a, an appeal for unity. Um, not uniformity. Sometimes we use those terms... You know, and and uniformity—we're not going to have uniformity of thinking because we all have different ideas about a lot of different things. But we want unity in the gospel, unity in what the Bible teaches. We want to be unified in that, and and have the same thinking and agreement about that. Uh, And that's what Paul is aiming for here, because they have different opinions, really, about the gospel. And that's really a serious problem. When you can't agree about the gospel, what it is, what's important about it, then you're gonna have a lot of problems in the church. And that's what's going on here. So he begins to exhort them to be unified. He says, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now again, this is not absolute unity about everything about who's the best NFL football team. We don't have to agree about that. I can tell you if you want to know, but but we don't have to agree <laughs> about about that, you know. But we're talking about the things of scripture, the things of the Bible, the gospel, things like that. So Paul, I say Paul's appeal is expressed both negatively and positively. Positively, he urges they agree with one another, perfectly united in mind and thought, and negatively there should be no divisions among them. And as, as I said before, the word divisions doesn't mean distinctly form groups, it, it, not parties, that is, but really just divided opinions. In this case, divided opinion over their various ministers who have come in to the church. Uh, and according to verse 11, and as we'll see and a, later in chapter 3, it, it has resulted in what he calls jealousy and quarrels among them. They're, 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 they're fighting each other you know, verbally about these things. Uh, the word you know, divisions here is used in the Gospel of John People were divided because of Jesus. John 9, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs?" sign? Divided. So divided opinions we're talking about. That's, as I've indicated many times here. Um, so he wants them to agree, as I say, uh, on the essentials of the gospel, um, and especially over their leaders They should agree about these men, about their function, what they're doing. They shouldn't be uh, preferring one over the other uh, and that kind of thing. Um, So the church needs to be united in, in the gospel and what it entails. Verse 11, the problem stated. My brothers and sisters, some of you from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. i say here, Paul says that he had learned about their divisions from communications he had from Chloe's household. And as I say, the text doesn't say where Chloe is from. Now remember, Paul is in the city of Ephesus across the Aegean in Asia Minor, the province of Asia, what we'd call Turkey today, which would be the, the west coast of Turkey, Ephesus. Um, and um, they are in Corinth, but where are these people Chloe from? Um, Some people think that because Paul quotes them as a reliable source, one that can be trusted, that they came from Ephesus maybe. In other words, they could be from Corinth. People, he's got a letter from Corinth, he heard from Corinth. But they could be from Ephesus, people who have visited Corinth and seen the situation, have come back to Paul and tells him, you know, here's what's going on, Paul. People who have no dog in the fight, (laughs) in a sense. They're sort of just observers. That may be true. Um, Maybe they visited and brought up a report back. These people from Chloe's household have informed Paul that there are quarrels. Um, And this differs, obviously, considerably from what he had picked up from their own letter to him. When we get to that letter, chapter 7, they don't, <laughs> they don't mention, they don't ask questions about, hey, Paul, we got these problems. we got these quarrels among us. They don't, they don't say anything about that. So they haven't mentioned this to Paul. This is what he's picked up from others. Now we see a detailed explanation of the problem. What I mean when I'm talking about these quarrels is this. One of you says, "I follow Paul." Now, the King James says, "I am of Paul." It's the, probably the idea of following Paul, or I'm my hero is Paul, or I'm a, I'm of the Paul group, or you know Paul's my leader. So that's what the NIV says. I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. I say Paul. Uh, now Paul explains the nature of the divisions. The church is experiencing quarrels which are being generated in the names of their various ministers, although it's unlikely that the ministers themselves are party to it. This is obviously true of Paul and Christ. (laughs) You know, obviously, (laughs) Paul and Christ aren't generating these quarrels. And the evidence from 1612 says it's not Apollos. We've talked about this several times where... Paul writing letter in this let le, writing writing later in this letter says, I want Paulus to go back to you. I want him to go back to Corinth, you know. Well, you, if 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 Apollos is a troublemaker, you don't want him to go back. So the fact that he wants him to go back suggests it's not Apollos who is creating these divisions, that kind of thing is what I was saying. Uh, Apollos was known for his eloquent and powerful preaching. And we know that he ministered in Corinth, Acts 18. Remember I said that Paul was on his second missionary journey that we're we're hearing in Sunday morning, second missionary journey, which we're in Philippi right now, Acts 16. And then we'll get to Acts 17. We'll get to Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. And then we'll get to Acts 18. We'll get to Corinth. Um, and we'll see if what Pastor Ken says is true, because we'll be experts on Corinth when when, when he when he gets there in Acts 18, probably mid uh, December, maybe I would say I don't know something like that. We'll see we'll, we'll see what that brings. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we'll know how to ask him questions during the sermon. Hey, uh, <laughs> this is what Combs said, you know. <laughs> No, don't do that, please. <laughs> so, uh, but so in Acts 18, he goes to Corinth, and then he leaves and goes to Ephesus, takes Priscilla and Aquila with him, but he leaves immediately, pretty much, and goes back to Jerusalem, Antioch, and then the third missionary journey he goes to Ephesus, and that's where he's at now. And during that time between the end of that second missionary journey when he left Priscilla and Aquila there and goes back to Jerusalem, uh, Apollos comes to uh, Ephesus and he's instructed more fully. You remember by Aquila and Priscilla about Jesus and the way and the gospel and so forth. And then he heads off to Corinth. That's, his, that's, that's what we're talking about. So we cannot be certain that Peter... His Aramaic name, Cephas, is used here. Uh, Ever ministered in Corinth, though possibly he did. Otherwise, it's hard to imagine how believers could be divided over him. I must say, most commentators think he never went there. and Maybe he didn't. You know, it is hard to understand. But on the other hand, it's hard to understand exactly why they mention him here. But it's unclear to us. But obviously, there was a Peter group. So we should understand I say that the church has fallen into love into a love with argumentation in which some of the Corinthians are boasting in themselves about supposing that their views about the gospel incorrect views actually come from one of their ministers. They think of the ministers that they rally around as teachers of wisdom in the Greek philosophical tradition. So they're they're just When people receive the gospel, when we receive the gospel or, you know, it's people, when you go to a different culture, you know, we, we can't imagine, but, you know, people receive the gospel and they immediately start comparing it to their own religions. You know, I remember, you know, hearing Rob Howell talk about going to Africa and you present the gospel to people who've had a totally different pagan religion and immediately they start thinking in terms of their pagan religion, you know, and they think it's like that. And they, you know, so there's a lot of misunderstanding. A lot of, you've got a a lot of teaching that has to be done to say, no, it's not like you've been taught. It's not like you've been thinking about. It's totally different. And so they are thinking about this as uh, these philosophical traditions where you had these uh, leaders who were charismatic, gifted speakers, rhetoric, and people followed them and, uh, and, and were, you know, rallied around them. Um, the fact that, you know, some people are said here to follow Paul, I follow Paul, you know, it suggests that some people weren't following Paul. I mean, the, the I follow Christ group is really hard to explain. I mean, doesn't everybody follow Christ? You know, what, what does that mean? Maybe they thought of themselves as sort of spiritually elite. You know, we're the Christ group. We're the really elite group. So these are hard to understand, except that they really indicate some serious bad thinking. I mean, Paul would say he follows Christ, but he doesn't approve of these slogans that, like they're using, you know, like pitting one against the other. I mean, we would say, yeah, I follow Paul and I follow Christ. I mean, Paul follows Christ and we follow Paul. I mean, we follow the teachings of Paul. We follow the teachings of Peter. We can say we're all followers of Peter and Christ and John. and You know, in a sense, our ultimate uh, loyalty is to Christ, obviously. But we follow these people because they're apostles teaching us in Scripture. But not in the sense that they're doing. That's the problem. Well, Paul's objection to the situation Verses 13 through 17. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I say we see here that Paul is quite upset at what he has learned from Chloe's household. Paul's arguments are designed to help his readers see the total absurdity of their own position. The question that Paul asks represents the logical extensions of their slogans. Yet in each each case, the question also demands a strongly negative response on the part of the Corinthians. The verb divided has the idea that Christ has been apportioned out as only one among many or on an equal level with other leaders. So this word divided, it's hard to translate that here because when I hear, when I hear the phrase, is Christ divided, you think about, is Christ, <laughs> I mean, that word divided doesn't quite fit what this means here. Uh, this means, you know, um, this means, as I say here, apportioned out. That is um, putting Christ on an equal level with these other men. Um, is, is Christ, uh, apportioned out as one among many? (laughs) Um, you know, if you're saying I follow Paul and I follow Christ, then Christ is on the same level as he can be just divided up and apportioned out like these other people can. And that's very, very serious problem, um, That is, um, so can some people say, I follow Christ, and others equally say, I follow Paul? Well, if that's the case, then you would be baptized in the name of Paul. You know, if Christ and Paul are on the same level, and there's no higher authority, then, okay. Some of you are baptized in the name of Christ, but that means some of you would be baptized. That's what he says, were some of you baptized in the name of Paul? Um, This is, of course, absurd. And he's trying to make nonsense out of these slogans. Yeah, we can all say we follow Christ, but we don't say say we follow Christ in the same sense we follow other people or we look to other people for leadership. Christ is above all, of course, God. I say here to be baptized in the name of someone means that one is bapt- one, the one baptized has turned over their allegiance and thus has given themselves to the one named in the right. Remember, Pastor Ken will often say, when people, he does say, whenever people are baptized, uh, he has these words, what's he say? And do you promise to follow him all the days of your life? So he's kind of trying to make people see, you're making quite a commitment here. When you're baptized, it's, you're, you're, you're giving a testimony that you're a follower of Christ, you've committed your life to Christ, it's a very serious thing. It's not just, uh, you know, it's, it's it's not just being dunked in water. It's much more than that. Um, and so that's what Paul is indicating here. This is a very serious thing to be baptized. You know, um, means are you giving your allegiance to Paul over someone else? Um, so. Uh, since they were not baptized into Paul's name, I say here, by that very fact they cannot say, I follow Paul, in the sense you'd say, I follow Christ. Um, so Paul, in, in the rest of this paragraph, is going to uh, show them the era of their ways um, um, and show them the... Um, that the person who baptizes who does the baptizing is not the important one, you know it's who's it's who your whose name are you being baptized in. Um, he says in verse fourteen, "I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius." So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. After mentioning this absurd idea in verse 13 that anyone should be baptized in his name, Paul goes on to say how grateful he is that he baptized so few. Case of providential good fortune. This circumstance prevents those who are following him from making the absurd claim in verse 13 that they were, that they were baptized in the name of Paul. So Paul did baptize some. Uh, but, it, you know, he didn't baptize everybody at, uh, at, uh, at Corinth. He did baptize a Crispus uh, and Gaius, he says here. Uh, Crispus is, you know, almost as surely the synagogue ruler. In Acts 18, uh, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. This is when Paul establishes a church at Corinth, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So Paul baptized when he first came. Obviously, Paul is doing the baptism. Once the church is formed and up and running, others are doing the baptizing. Uh, Paul says in Romans, in the epistle uh, that he writes from Corinth on his uh, third missionary journey, uh, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus. So this Gaius, he mentions, uh, is most likely identified with this, I think most likely 1623 here, who is, remember Paul is writing Romans from Corinth. So Paul did baptize a few people, but he says, it's, I'm just glad that I didn't baptize a bunch of you, so... You couldn't point to the fact that, you know, I'm following Paul. He baptized me, and then therefore, you know, uh, I'm following him. Verse 16, yes, I also baptize the households of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. So parenthetically, notice that the NIV puts that in parentheses. So after he stated this, he, he remembers uh, something or Or possibly Stephanus reminds Paul as he's dictating, maybe. Stephanus was one of the men who possibly uh, brought the Corinthian letter to Paul. Uh, Remember in Acts 1 Corinthians 16, it says, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they've supplied what was lacking, he says later in the epistle. So it could be that someone reminded him, Paul Paul is dictating. Paul probably dictated his letters. Most people in the ancient world uh, dictated letters rather than wrote them. Uh, most educated people tended to dictate letters. And Paul mentions a number of times that he had a, dic- he had a secretary, uh, a technical name they call as an amanuensis, somebody who took down this down. Remember in the, the Epistle to the Romans, he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. <laughs> he doesn't mean he... <laughs> composed Romans, but I mean, I wrote it down. Paul was dictating this. So Paul apparently dictated uh, his letters, and some of them he mentions, the amanuensis, the secretary who did that. And so um, maybe that's what happened. Maybe the person who was taking it down, we don't know, or somebody who was with him, reminds Paul, yeah, Paul, you also baptized the household of Stephanus. Um uh, so, uh, yeah, but beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody. I didn't baptize a lot of people. Um, so the point here is that the person who baptized you is really not important. It's insignificant. Uh, when a person is baptized in, in our church, it's not a Ken Brown ordinance. It's a CBC ordinance. It's a church ordinance. It's the church that authorizes the baptism. Um, and so by paying attention to the person who baptized them, they're missing out on the import of baptism. You know, The import of baptism is not the person who baptized you, it's the meaning of the baptism, what that means. Verse 17, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Paul explains, Christ didn't send me to baptize. Paul's calling was an apostle whose mission was to evangelize and plant churches. Other Christians could baptize. Now, Paul's not minimizing Christian baptism. It's required. We're supposed to do that. Um, Christ gave the Great Commission to do that but others could baptize. Baptism does not require an apostle for its administration. I say here, after making it clear what he did come to do, uh, what he didn't come to do to baptize, Paul um, moves on to what he did come to do, to preach the gospel. He further describes this task with a remarkable contrast, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ should be rendered ineffective. Now, the very way, the and the very way this is said, plus the fact that he goes on in the rest of the verses here, chapter 118, all the way through chapter 216, when we read the rest of these verses, it makes it pretty clear. That wisdom and eloquence are something the Corinthians admired. Remember, this is part of this philosophical tradition wisdom, oratory, eloquence, and speaking, and so forth. So, Paul's intent here is pretty clear. He wants to set forth what his own ministry is like as far as its content. Uh, the word wisdom there, and as far as its form, the word eloquent. So he's talking probably about content uh, and and its form. This is in sharp sharp contrast to the Corinthians' view of the gospel. As we'll see, Paul will say the gospel is not human wisdom. It's not a form of wisdom. But then, <laughs> then in later in chapter 2, say, but wait a minute, there is a sense in which the gospel is wisdom. It's not this kind of human wisdom you're talking about. You're not saved by being smart you know, or something like that. We'll see how that all works, but it's not, it's not some sort of human wisdom. Um, it's not the wisdom of this world, he'll say. He'll make this very clear. But he's trying to characterize the gospel in his ministry. It's not characterized by this human wisdom and eloquence, that kind of thing. The wisdom that they're enamored with, I keep saying, is this Greek philosophical rhetorical tradition that was less concerned about the value of the message than the approval ratings of the audience. So it's not... So much the message that the speaker is trying to get across—a Greek philosopher, a Greek, and a a Greek rhetorician. It's how does how does the audience respond? Now we can relate to that. I mean, (laughs) politicians are concerned about the response of the audience. You know, we want we want politicians. we, We want to vote for people who have the proper message, who have the right uh, ideas, who have the, what we believe is the, the right program, the right doctrines, right beliefs, who want to vote for those people. And, uh, but politicians are tempted to, and, and they all do, obviously, to form their message, to you know, change it so it'll appeal to what people want, not necessarily what is best or true or anything like that. And that's that can be true in preaching. It can be true in all kinds of communications. and it's true that and Paul is resisting that. Um, so Christ sent Paul to we often say herald the gospel, to just give it forth in a particular manner, without worldly rhetoric for a particular purpose to make, Christ's cross, uh, you know, to to present the cross of Christ. Not to make it useless, but to make it uh, uh, powerful in the lives of people. I say here, to follow wisdom and eloquence alone, Paul says, is to render the cross of Christ ineffective. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Barrett, in his commentary, says this, Paul Represents Himself as a preacher, not an orator. Preaching is the proclamation of the cross. It is the cross that is the source of its power. That is the Christian message. The convincing power of the cross could not be fully manifest if preaching shared too evidently in the devices of human rhetoric. If men are persuaded by eloquence, they are not persuaded by Christ crucified. So that's a, you know, that's always a problem. That's always a danger that we'll try to convince people to accept Christ by some sort of, you know, argument that is clever and tricky. And you know, uh, I remember when I was first saved, and you know, we were trying to learn how to evangelize people, and we had the Jack Hiles manual. <laughs> You know, there's all kinds of methods, you know, you try to get people to agree, say yes to this and say yes to this. And then you grab their hand and say, wouldn't you like to, you know, so it's almost like a salesman. You know, you're trying to sell something. You're trying to get people, you know, using sales techniques or something like that. So that, that we have to be very careful of the cross because preaching will often, Paul says, invite ridicule, not applause. It's not always well-received. Now, Sometimes it is, because sometimes God prepares the hearts of people and they they hear it and they readily accept it, but they don't always. They sometimes will ridicule and strongly object. So we have to be true to the message of the gospel. Um, So, um, the reasons for the problem... That is the problem at Corinth. What's the reasons for these divisions? Well, there are two main problems here. Uh, Misunderstanding of the gospel message is one. And then when we get to 3.5, the other is misunderstanding the role of these leaders. And he'll start off in 3.5. What is Paul and Apollos? What is their function? How do they function? in this whole thing. But he starts off with misunderstanding of the gospel message, 118 through 3-4. And he starts at an amazing part here, amazing because he starts talking about the foolishness of the gospel. Foolishness is not a term we normally think about associating with the gospel, you know. We don't think about the gospel as being foolish. Uh, I say here... The cross is not something to which one may add human wisdom and thereby make it superior. Rather, the cross, that is the message of the cross, the gospel, stands in absolute, uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. Human wisdom does not lead... I don't think that's spelled right there, is it? It's supposed to be lead. Does not lead people to the true God, but actually away from God. That's so true, isn't it? Human wisdom does not lead people to the true God, but actually away from God. The cross is considered foolishness to wisdom humanly conceived, but it is what we might call God's foolishness, foolishness that is at the same time His wisdom and power, as we'll see. Uh, so Paul says, in effect, uh, do you think the gospel is a form of wisdom, a form of the Greek word sophia? Phia? Uh, he says, you know, that's rather foolish if you think of the gospel as a form of wisdom. He'll and he'll try to show that. He'll say he'll he'll start he'll 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 say uh, look at the message of the so so the the gospel looks foolish it 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 looks foolish it looks foolish to the world if we look at these three things look at its message look at its recipients and then look at the the one who preaches it look at the one who brings it forth and that's what he's going to cover in the next uh, three sections, one eighteen through two five. Um, so there's a sense in which the gospel uh, is uh, is foolish when you look at the message. I mean, it's based on the idea of a crucified Messiah. Uh, I know that's hard for us when you talk... when you know, in our culture and most of the time, when I was growing up, you talk about Christ on the cross and seemed fine, it seemed good. It doesn't seem crazy or it seems very wonderful or very religious. It's, you know, but in the ancient world, to think about somebody on a cross (laughs) and the Messiah on a cross, Jewish Messiah on a cross, that's pretty foolish stuff in the eyes of the world. Um, and so he says, look at the message, look at the recipients as we'll see, yourselves. And he kind of says, who in the, in the name of wisdom would have selected you, you people, <laughs> he says. <laughs> and uh, then finally think about my own preaching, you know. Um, I came in weakness as we'll see. So let's look at that. The foolishness of the gospel, the foolish, the gospel is foolishness in the content of the message. Now, remember, there's a sense in which the gospel is foolishness. There is a sense looked at it from the human perspective. It seems foolish. And as I say, when Paul gets to two six, he's going to turn around and say, well, okay." but there's also a sense in which the gospel is wisdom. We think of the gospel as wise a wonderful plan. God saved me through this gospel. This is great. This is wonderful. It's the greatest thing in the world. What could be wiser? (laughs) But in terms of human wisdom, you know, apart from God, it's rather foolish. So I'll say first here, the gospel is foolishness in the content of the message. 118 through 25. 118. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. So human wisdom and the message of the cross are are mutually exclusive. This exclusivity can be seen in how it divides mankind into two groups, those who are perishing, the lost, and those who are saved, the saved. Both the perishing and the saved are a present process. So um, remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he'll say just shortly, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. So the message of the cross, humanly conceived, is foolishness. And that's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, that's us. It's the power of God. Verse 19, For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Paul now moves on to argue that this foolishness of God with its message of the cross is in fact God's way of doing what He said He would do in the Old Testament. Set aside and destroy human wisdom of fallen creatures. Paul's proof, he quotes here, Isaiah 29, 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, The intelligent of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? These questions in verse 20 continue the point of the quotation in verse 19. Paul is expressing the sarcasm of passage like Isaiah 19, 12, in which the prophet asks, in light of what, God was about to do where now are you wise men? So Paul is asking in, in view of what God has done in the cross what is left of the wise in this present age? Um, now these, these questions mention various categories of those who were thought to be experts in the ancient world. The wise person the teacher of the law. This is obviously a Jewish idea, the philosopher of this age. The cross is considered foolishness to those who are perishing, but the very message of the salvation through the cross of Christ has made foolishness out of the world's wisdom, which is based entirely on human self-sufficiency. And the rest of the paragraph is going to explain all this. Verse 20, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Paul now sets out to explain with this four to the Corinthians how what he has just said in verse 19 is true. He begins with a statement on which he assumes he and they will agree, namely that the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So on their own, through human wisdom that belong, you know, human beings, the wisdom that they have in their fallen state, human beings fail to know God altogether. So human beings left on their own are not going to discover God, are not going to be saved on their own. If God didn't intervene, everyone would go to hell. All, All of us are fallen through Adam and without God intervening, we would not discover God, come to a correct understanding. Now, we discover gods, pagan gods. We discover gods of our own making, idolatry, you know. Yeah, humans are very religious people. And they, throughout the history of mankind, have developed all kinds of gods and goddesses and all kinds of religions and things like that, but not truth, you know. And, um uh, a correct understanding of what God is doing in the world can only come through revelation. God has to reveal it, as we'll see in 2 through 16. When he says, in the wisdom of God, means in God's wise plan. So, since in, the wisdom of, since in God's wise plan, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. So Paul says all along it was part of God's providential plan that He so arranged things. So God's plan all along was to confound human wisdom because a God discovered through human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness, which it is, which gods, you know, pagan gods are, a projection of human fallenness. I mean, think about the Greek gods and the Roman gods. They were just human. They were just super, super beings, superhumans. They had all the passions of humans. They had jealousy, and they murdered. They killed each other. They raped. You know, the gods did just the same wicked things that humans did. If you study the, mythology, it's the same thing. So they created gods of their own making um, that were just like them. Um, and they become a source of human pride, you know. And so they're really worshiping the creature, not the creator. Remember Paul says, although they claim to be wise, these people who fell, the fallen world, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So man, when he fell, this is what he ended up with. He claimed to be wise, but in his human wisdom, this is what he came up with. He came up with gods that look like men, act like men, or birds and animals and reptiles, and he worshipped those things. Worship the creature, not the creator. Paul says God was pleased to bring people into a proper relationship with himself through the foolishness of what was preached. That is the message of a crucified Messiah. You know, Paul will say in Romans 3, 10, and 11, there's no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, you know, not even intellectuals, not even the smartest people with the highest IQ." So, since God, all are in need of salvation, God—it pleased God. It was His sovereign good pleasure to rescue from His wrath those who would believe the message of the cross. And so, salvation, as we know, comes through believing what is proclaimed, as He says here. Please God through the foolishness of what was preached, what was proclaimed even if the message that's heralded seems foolish to the hearers. It might seem foolish. As I say, that's, this is hard culturally for us to understand because I'm a child, I grew up, and we honored the cross. We honored, I mean, we thought that was, we thought that was good. And, but you've got to just put your place, yourself, back into the, maybe that world. And, you know, as I've tried to illustrate before, here's a Roman... Who is told that you're saved through believing that a Jew? Jews were despised. The ancient world was really anti-Semitic, hated Jews, looked down on Jews. So some Jewish guy who was crucified. Now anybody who's crucified is the worst kind of criminal in the world. I mean, to Roman, to a Roman. To a greek that would seem like a very foolish message you know you know it's just it's just hard to accept now it's becoming that way today too you know it's becoming more difficult to accept because people aren't raised in a christian culture they don't have that background you know and uh, so we're coming back to paul's sort of cultural situation here um So the foolish message is that salvation comes through Jesus, the crucified one. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Paul divides the perishing into two basic groups, Jews and Greeks, which illustrate the primary idolatries of human beings. The message of the cross is foolish to both. The point is that both of these groups insist that God conform to their ideas, to their prior views of how things ought to be. Uh, they expect God to submit Himself to their criteria. Jews demand signs. God, if you're God, my God must do this. My God must be like... I mean, you've heard this <laughs> when you talk to people. I can't believe in a God like that, you know. If, if you know, if if God, if there is a God, He wouldn't do what you're saying, or He would do this. They want a God who does what they demand. So Jews demand signs to validate their faith. Show us a sign they repeatedly demanded of Jesus. Remember that? Their idolatry, the Jews' de- de- the idolatry was that they demanded that God fit their conception of God. God had done mighty miracles in the past, the Exodus. You know, So they had God figured out. He's got to do greater miracles. Greeks look for wisdom. This, too, was a natural characteristic. As early as Herodotus, one of the early Greek writers, philosophers, uh, historians, he said of them, uh, "...all Greeks were zealous for every kind of learning." So, their idolatry was to conceive of God as ultimate reason. I mean, they thought of God as logos, as reason. Uh, and by that, they mean what we deem reasonable. You know, God, God must be what we deem reasonable. So, Paul says, Jews and Greeks means, of course, Gentiles here. As we'll see in verse 23, he uses the word Gentiles. I mentioned an illustration here that I think back uh, about evolution. The general theory of evolution teaches that all the living forms in the world have arisen from a single source, which itself came from an inorganic form. This is the classic theory of evolution taught in biology courses in many schools. According to the late, famous Harvard evolutionary biologist, Stephen Jay Gould, I don't know if you know, he died some years ago, but he was one of these guys who was on TV a lot, on programs a lot. He was a famous biologist. But he talked about evolution. He says, evolution functions with or without a creator, so long as the creator works by natural laws. So, you know, I don't have any problem with the Creator as long as He conforms to what I believe God should. And as long as He conforms to natural laws, you know. So, my God is evolution and natural law. And as long, you can, as, long as you can fit your God into that, then I'm fine, you know, that's okay. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Instead of giving the seekers of signs and wisdom what they wanted, God gave them something shocking. But we preach Christ crucified. Rather than giving them the signs and wisdom they demand, they, they get weakness and folly. Christ crucified is a contradiction in terms, at least to Jewish thinking. Christ is the Messiah. It's the same category as you know, fried ice from the human Point of view, it's impossible to have a crucified Messiah. The Jewish thinking that just can't happen. The Messiah means power, splendor, triumph, glory. Crucifixion means weakness, shame, humiliation, defeat. So Jews and Greeks were scandalized by this Christian message, by this message of Christ crucified. Jesus died as a state criminal. This is a scandal to Jews, to Greeks. Uh, you know, this is so to the Jew, the message of the of a crucified Messiah was the ultimate scandal. Remember, Deuteronomy says, if a man guilty of a capital, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, he must not leave his body on the tree overnight. So that's, that, that was Jesus. He was hung on a tree. Well, that's a scandal. That's a criminal. That's just utter nonsense to the Jew. Um, so you know, they saw it as a fulfillment of, of Deuteronomy 21 here. Anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. I say to the Gentiles, the message of the Christ crucified was a pernicious superstition. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, uh, and uh, he called it a pernicious superstition, and, quote, a perverse extravagant superstition, according to Pliny the Younger. So in other words, to Gentiles, Christ crucified was complete foolishness. So early Christians, you know, people wear crosses around their necks, but not early Christians didn't do that. You know that one of the symbols they used was that fish symbol. You know, you've seen that. Yeah, little <laughs> feet. I don't know about that, but fish. <laughs> but they didn't use the cross early on. It was, you know, that was such a that was such a scandalous thing. A cross. That's. That's unbelievable. Why would you... They didn't use that as a symbol of their faith initially. It took some time. It was you know, well over 100 years before anybody used a cross. Verse 24, But to those whom God has called... Okay. Yeah, the message of the cross is foolishness. Um, to the Greeks, it's a scandal. To the Jews... But to those whom God has called, the efficacious call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. From a merely human perspective, the central message of the Christian gospel must always appear as foolish. But to people from both groups whom God has called to salvation, this foolishness turns out to be the power of God and the wisdom of God. I say, you know, this calling is the effectual calling, uh, enabling that God um, to those, God enables those of us who have cho- uh, to believe, He enables us to believe. Uh, remember Romans 8.30, And those He predestined, He also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So there's that um, chain there, that golden chain. He predestines, and then he calls, and those he calls, he justifies. And those of us who have been called, we see the power of God and the wisdom of God. We didn't see it on our own. We thought it was foolishness. We thought the message was foolish. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul now concludes his argument with a theological principle. God is both wiser and more powerful than human beings. The message of the cross appears to be foolishness to human wisdom, but it ultimately turns out to be wiser since it brings salvation. Thus, what appears to be weakness, a crucified Messiah, is actually more powerful than any human power. So, in a sense, God, in the cross, God outsmarted His own human creatures and nullifies their wisdom. So, there's there's a sense in which the gospel is foolish. There's a sense. When you look at the content of its message from a human perspective, it appears to be rather foolish, nonsense, stupid. There's also a sense in which the gospel is foolish when you look at the recipients of the message. Not only is the gospel message viewed as foolish by an unbelieving world, but we believers who receive the message the gospel are also viewed in a similar way. This is because of the kind of people whom God normally chooses for salvation. So God chose the Corinthians who were not from the world's beautiful people. These people were mostly from the lower classes, we get the impression in the book of Corinth. The nobodies, as he will talk about them. Um, So the Corinthians themselves are evidence of the foolishness of God which confounds the wise. Um, Because, you know, in a humanly conceived God... He would be the kind of God that the wisest people would flock to, you know. And and we don't see that in our world. 126, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called, called to salvation. Not many of you were wise by human standards. He didn't say any of you, (laughs) but he said not many of you. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Paul invites the Corinthians to consider or think about what they were like when they were called to salvation. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. So the irony, you know, of this present situation is that the Corinthians are judging Paul and his gospel by human standards. You know, by these human standards, they're judging Paul which if they were to apply themselves would kind of show how insignificant they really are. And as I say, although Paul says not many, he was, not, he was aware of the fact that some in the church were in fact well-off by human standards. Uh, Crispus, Gaius, Erastus, Stephanus, you know. Uh, but primarily the church was concerned of people who were not of the middle, cl- middle class. Um, verse 27 but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so a look at the Corinthian church demonstrates that the majority of them we're not part of the elite of this world, but we're just common folk. The reason for this makeup is now clear. God chose people from a particular socioeconomic background in Corinth to be saved particular for a particular purpose. In order to shame the wise and to finally to bring it to nothing... Except for the word wise, all the adjectives are neuter in the original Greek, things. Paul is describing the Corinthians with these terms. The idea is something like the help or the hard hands. No one of importance. So it's a little confusing here because Paul says God chose the foolish things. God chose the weak things. God chose the lowly things and the things. But he's actually talking about people. And I said the Greek neuter because in most languages, most Indo-European languages, German and, and French and Greek and Latin, um, they're inflected languages and nouns have gender. They're masculine, feminine, or neuter. We don't have that. A chair, it's just a chair. <laughs> You don't spell it differently, you know. It's not. It's not feminine, or but that's not true in Greek or Latin or German or other languages like that. And so Paul uses the neuter. He does it for a particular purpose because he he um, he is trying to uh, suggest that these Corinthians don't think too highly of yourself. You're just like things. <laughs> you just like hard help. You're not really of importance. Uh, God chose people like you. He didn't choose the most brilliant people. He didn't choose, you know, they're not, you know, Nobel Prize winners. You know, if you go to the faculty of University of Michigan, very smart people over there. How many Christians would you find? I don't think it'd be a large percentage or very, (laughs) at all, you know. I don't, that's not been my experience. Uh, It's not the, if you go to the the halls of even Congress or, you know, the smartest politicians or if you go to the brightest lawyers in Washington, you know, you're not going to find a great deal of Christianity there. These are very smart people. If you go to Harvard Law School, Consider the top law school. Go to the faculty there. You're not going to find... So God is purposely... Um, and He says that three times. God chose of course, three times. And that's further affirmed by the word called in verse 26. So God has chosen who He has in the church, in our church and other churches, He's chosen different groups of people, but he hasn't particularly said, you know, I'm going to get the smartest people. (laughs) And that's, you know, and I'm going to make them all Christians. He's, He's chosen people of different abilities and intelligence and backgrounds and not necessarily the brightest and smartest so that we can't glory in that. We can't say, you know, well, no wonder God chose me. Look who I am, you know. So, so that people can't look at themselves and say, oh, yeah, it figures God would choose me, you know. No, that's, God has purposely done it this way. Well, we better stop here. We'll have to come back to this next time. Okay, thank you so much. We'll pick it up here.